Okay, Private Miller. You've been smoking item 9 for 7 minutes and 13 seconds. We're going to ask you several questions. How do you feel? Uh, well, sir, uh, I feel like a... like a slice of butter melting on top of a big old pile of flapjacks. Yeah. Okay, Private Miller. When you think of your superiors, what emotions do you feel? Okay, Private Miller. Is this normal? Okay, Private Miller. Okay, Private Miller. Private Miller. Answer the question. Gonna, you torch me? <laughs> we'll send someone in. Holy bejesus! <gasps> Private Miller, answer the question. What was the question again, sir? When you think of your superiors, what emotions do you feel? You know what? You know what problem I have with your fucking little dog and pony act you call the military? Here it is. One, lots of dudes. Where are the boobies? Two, why are we underground right now, sir? Why can't we be out in the open? Why aren't we in a square right now? Why aren't we talking to people, letting them know item nine exists? Get it out, shout at the rooftops. This is great. This is the bee's knees, item nine. Private, we need you to be serious. I'm serious. Your dick, my mouth. That's inappropriate. Fuck you. I've seen enough. Shut it down. Bury the hatch. Sell the land. And dispose of him. This never happened. Dude, what happened to your eye? Hey, hello. Bleep, blurp, bleep, bleep, blurp, blurp. Can you guys understand me? Hey, hey, where are we going? This is General like Brad. We've reached a final conclusion on item nine. Illegal! I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. to the return of the repressed hope everyone is doing well seeing as we now have the Palme investigation running behind the paywall and as this grand finale became two episodes <laughs> over the last weeks I have decided to release them on the normal feed 
I hope nobody will object to that. But if you do, uh, and you are a paying subscriber, then you know I'll take your considerations into consideration. It's been a long journey, but the best is yet to come. We are moving into the making of contemporary time, the very threshold of what can be called history. In three episodes, we have demonstrated the immense importance of hemp's role in running the logistics of early modern capitalist commodity circulation up until the 1850s, as well as the trade of its predecessors upon which it was built. Thank you so much for everybody who signed up during that time. It was a really nice month, a really good beginning of the summer. I have to say. Now, fiber was together with food the two major constituents of the early grain states. Some historians often erroneously speak about the Bronze Age or Copper Age as the substantial beginning of civilization, but forget that there was or that there were early class societies that did not develop to any significant degree an industry of metallurgy. Furthermore, those grain states that did so to a marginal degree often did so due to a demand for ornaments. In other words, a superstructural desire for a symbolic registration of a wealth achieved through ownership of food and fiber plantations. This is an essential point to return to time and time again as we wrap things up as we might find ourselves asking questions like what does the Council on Foreign Relations or steel barons like JP Morgan have to do with hemp? Or is plastic really that big of a deal for a cooperation like DuPont? Could an economical social formation like the Guarantee Trust really allow competing bourgeois historical blocs to temporarily come together in ushering in a new era of synthetics. Well, class society, this, our class society, is a Neolithic social phenomenon and the people who reap the benefits of it are still, despite the metaphorical confusion of that word, still literally in business of reaping things. Often without sowing since, well, they have others doing it for them. That goes without saying. My point, though, is that according to our contemporary mythology, we are led to associate our richest plantation owners with jet-fueled star chariots, what once the ancient Egyptians called the boat of millions of years, the solar vessels of Apollo and Ra, a magical technological obfuscation of the true causality behind the cosmic events that made sure the tax crops of the autocrats grew and that time moved in the right direction. Why the Deus Ex Magica Machina theatre was first performed was, I think, simply to hide the primitive nature of the Lord's accumulation. I mean, if one doesn't feel confident in how things work, say something as simple as how plants grow, 
why then one feels the insisting desire for an explanatory order. How plants grow still dictates the basics of the increasingly global state economy. Bezos still wraps his commodities in cardboard made from trees based on a sulfite process from the end of hemp supremacy during the Crimean War. The chemicals of which DuPont, the world's second biggest chemical giant, said constituted about 80% of their railroad car loadings from the 1930s to the 1990s. What is being shipped inside those boxes depends, of course, on, on which statistic you look at. But clothes and bed linen, i.e. cotton fabric, most often ranks at the top. Or it is toys and electronics, etc., made from plastics ultimately derived from coal tar and oil, just as it was when Badische Anilin and Sodafabrik, the BASF, the world's biggest chemical giant, first faked the blue indigo. Aniline, the synthetic coloring agent, of course, also comes from coal and coal mining, furthermore, just like tax plantations, is a Neolithic institution from thousands of years before the Chinese Bronze Age. I think what I'm trying to say is that our predicament is quite simple, quite rudimentary, we have as of yet not discovered a Haber-Bosch generator that can make synthetic food out of thin air. And when things eventually get real again, we will see that the ones of the Iconosphere are just Stone Age grain lords, who has even forgotten how to sow, and thus shouldn't reap. It is true that the oligarchs have not managed to outmaneuver the fragility of depending on a higher ruler. The sun disk above the pyramid, which is not an eye, mind you, it's quite blind. When it comes to palm oil, the rice, the soybeans, the corn, the wheat, the timber, the cotton, etc., things still do not live up to the true bourgeois standards of pedantry. Neurotic industrial measuring units do not hold up or make sense in the natural world of inconsistency, despite genetic modification. This, we must assume, infuriates them immensely. The obsessional lack of being forced to depend on things which do not obey clearly stated laws of binary codes in computers or the precision of semiconductor factories must be a libidinal event intense enough to shut down Zuckerberg's internal software again and again. A natural remnant of inconvenience which these apparatuses in the shape of humans are still burdened with and wish to overcome. Nature is not neat or slick enough for them. God damn it! If only life itself could be a bit more straightforward, muses Musk as he walks down the aisle with an AI sex robot. With all that being said, in the world of synthetic fiber, they have somewhat temporarily succeeded. We, we must recognize that. And thus it is within the proximity of these inventions that we must look for the culprits to conclude our story of this anti-hemp conspiracy. Synthetic fiber, 
synthetic fuel, synthetic rubber, building material, fabric, medicine, colors, etc. was very much initially an international fascist project. We have spoken about this before. That there might be something to such a statement is, I think, strengthened by the fact that in opposition to the hemp ban, which made sure that no cannabis sativa L was legally planted on United States soil until the second millennium, or to any substantial degree in any of 200 or so countries that were forced to accept the decrees of the fourth eagle under the petrochemical dollar regime, we find two countries that would refuse it all the way until the mid-late 80s and their own partial demise into neoliberalism during the years of contracts. That is China, the People's Republic, and the Soviet Union of Socialist Republics, and their defiant hemp industries, which we will get to. France is also in opposition to the rule, which probably means that they better than anyone understood what had happened during the Napoleonic Wars, which we just spent a lot of hours talking about. Today I will continue to tell a part of that story and bring our focus on cannabis sativa hemp to a grand finale conclusion. Well, the grand finale conclusion will not come today, but we are bringing us there. Okay? <laughs> Let's begin by expanding what was hinted at in the intro of the last episode. That is, the last great peasant uprisings of the 20th century America. What's the matter with that cat there? Must be full of reefer. Full of reefer? Yeah, man. Mean that cat's high? Sailing. Sailing? Sailing lightly. Did you get away from here? Man, is that the reefer, man? That's the reefer, man. I believe he's losing his mind. I think he's lost his mind. Man. 
for farm products skyrocketed. In Europe, farms were being destroyed by war, while the men who worked them were drafted into armies. Suddenly, farmers in the US had a market for as much as they could possibly grow, and more. Americans faced food shortages and were urged to save food and plant gardens. The US government guaranteed prices for farm products to supply the army. To meet the demand, farmers increased their acreage and expanded their herds, in many cases by borrowing money, and for a few years they enjoyed a rare prosperity. As quickly as the boom had begun, though, it ended. With the war's end, the government no longer guaranteed farm prices and they fell to pre-war levels. Farmers who had borrowed money to expand during the boom couldn't pay their debts. As these farms then became rated as less valuable, land prices fell and farms were often worth less than their owners owed to the bank. Farmers across the country lost their farms as banks foreclosed on mortgages. During the boom years of the war, rural states and communities borrowed money to build new roads and infrastructure solutions so that every farm in America could be linked into the new international agricultural commodity system of steam engine transport. And now the high taxes and the interest needed to pay off those debts added to farmers' burdens. In rural areas, Many banks that had begun to accumulate undervalued farmland also started to fail, went bankrupt and closed, because they were unable to collect anything of value on loans they had made to farmers. Anyone who had money in these banks lost their savings. For farmers and farm communities, the Great Depression began in the Roaring Twenties, not in the Thirties as bigger banks began to buy up smaller banks stocked with undervalued farmland. The stab in the back of mixed economic measures with no sense of direction, which had boosted and promised the farmers everything during the war and then took from them everything during the 20s and 30s, angered more than a few. In the 1920s the US had only just become a majority urban population, and a quarter of Americans still worked on farms. By the time the stock market crashed in 1929, farmers had been in a depression for a decade. Thus at the beginning of the 1930s, right after the Wall Street crash, the Northern Plains witnessed the last great farm revolts in its history. 
hid over here too, that is. Now a flood of protests spilled across the region, fed by the springs of hard times and earlier insurgencies. The countryside, for one last moment, forced itself upon the rest of the country and demanded attention for its plight. Many historians assume that the story of 1930s agrarianism is the story of the farmer's holiday, which called for farm strikes, picketed roads leading to market centers and attempted to prevent foreclosure sales. In reality, however, it includes the efforts of other groups, particularly the communist-led United Farmers League, the UFL, as well as the Socialist Party and its offshoot organization, the Nonpartisan League, the NPL, a left-wing farmers' organization which became the most important 20th century agrarian political movement in the upper Midwest. The holiday did not appear in the Dakotas until the late summer of 1932, but the UFL had presence in eastern Montana and western North Dakota before then. By the time the holiday started up in the Dakotas, a vocal minority of UFL adherents was already in place. In some locales, its prior agitation prepared the way for the more acceptable holiday. And just to make clear what we are talking about when we talk about holiday, was basically a somewhat ingenious move by the farmers to, well, simply take a holiday and not work. And since they, if they did that collectively, knew that everybody would have to pay higher prices for less amount of food, why they had somehow history on their side, we could say. But things are never that easy. Furthermore, on the other hand, sometimes the UFL was not established until after the 1932 farm strike broke out. Whatever the particular case, however, the UFL was sometimes an ally and sometimes a rival to the holiday. The farm revolt peaked on the northern plains in 1933 and 1934, and the UFL dissolved in 1935, urging its members to join the holiday association. This step was in accord with the popular front strategy embraced by the Communist Party at the time. It was generally recognized that the holiday movement was a farmers' union-sponsored effort that could be steered in a more radical direction. One South Dakota activist recently referred to it as, quote, the army and the navy of the farmers' union, end of quote. An example of a double membership of Popular Front Strategy in Brown County, South Dakota, was John Sumption, who became president of the county holiday. He was a member of the UFL and a communist. Other UFL speakers, including the communist matriarch Ella Reeve Bloor, who I will put up a picture of on, on the Twitter because she looks cool, man, appeared in many communities in the northwest counties of North Dakota and UFL locals were formed in several towns. Perhaps the most unusual antecedent to the Depression-era farm revolt in this region was found in the Wilmette area of the same county. There, according to one report, former members of the Ku Klux Klan, organized in the 1920s, joined the Communist Party in the 1930s. Now, if you think this kind of conversion is impossible, 
you have spent too much time on the internet and Twitter. And I mean that both in the good and the bad sense. The good sense being that sometimes these people are just very, very, very angry people. And if they can be guided in the direction of, you know, communion with people of other colors against the real enemy, then that is a good thing. The bad thing is if they are indeed infiltrators or people who, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> However, this should not lead us to conclude that the 1930s revolt was simply, you know, quote-unquote 20th century populism or some other similar characterization which... Uh, the uh, studies on this matter is quite ripe with because well you gotta explain why we got fucking communists in america right <laughs> now the holiday as well as the ufl was more a direct action movement than any other agrarian uprising on the northern plains unlike earlier economic movements the holiday did not promote cooperatives and other enterprises that is, they are refusing market-oriented solutions. And unlike earlier agrarian political movements, it did not attempt to become a vehicle to gain public office. Again, it's anti-parliamentarian. While some of its participants did benefit politically through their involvement, the holiday itself did not become a partisan political machine. No other farm movement in the region's history proved to be as decentralized and subject to local direction. One of the most active women in the Northern Plains was Effie Kjurstad of uh, Williams County, North Dakota. The daughter of Norwegian immigrants, uh, she was raised in a radical household. Her father had passed through the socialists and uh, the NPL movements and had been the communist candidate for sheriff in 1932. She herself ran for Congress in 1934 and state senate in 1936. A very energetic individual, she sold large numbers of subscriptions to the left-wing farm press and was a frequent speaker at protest meetings in the county. Parallel to the success of the radicalizing farmers, who were organizing, even those uh, from other sectors of society, as they too now started falling into the depression. A conservative backlash developed, particularly against the UFL. Uh, the American Legion, the US answer to the German veteran associations like the Freikorps and the Stahlhelm, uh, the roots of which had already started to form during the Great Railroad Strikes of 1877, right? With its uh, reactionary strike breaking and the organizing of private police forces and the National Guard, now began to adopt vigilante tactics in Britain, South Dakota, in the summer of 1934. And the sheriff, reportedly, was a leader of such a mob which beat several men, including a disabled World War I veteran. Neither local nor state authorities intervened, and no arrests were made. We will get back to these American Freikorps organizations, including the Liberty League, since uh, there were more, and as always, the question of who funded them is always interesting. 
Overall, the 1930s insurgency dramatized the plight of the farmer, protected many from eviction and foreclosure, and forced politicians to develop new programs to address the needs of rural America. Of course, it was not a complete success. Uh, the slogan, quote-unquote, cost of production, never was obtained, and many farm families were uprooted from their communities and forced to start over again somewhere else. Still, it must be said that the revolt bought time for a large number of farmers on the northern plains, and that is not an insignificant achievement. In some sections, such as uh, northeastern South Dakota, the farmers' unions got its second wind, and it emerged from the Depression as a stronger force than before. The Communist Party also recruited a number of farmers to its cause during the Depression-era insurgency, while some quickly dropped out, others signed up for the long term. Enclaves of communist farmers persisted in several Dakota communities well into the 1940s, and sometimes longer, resulting in FBI surveillance for two decades or more. The farm revolt of the 1930s was the last major agrarian outburst on the northern plains. While a number of radicals lived on and hints of radicalism surfaced from time to time, the era of large-scale farm protests in this region had passed. After a period of high visibility, these efforts receded in the wake of New Deal programs that seemingly undercut the rural revolt. Edward O'Neill, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, told senators in January 1933, quote, Unless something is done for the American farmer, we will have revolution in the countryside within less 12 months. End of quote. Barely 200 words into his inaugural speech, just after declaring the famous The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, Roosevelt acknowledged that producers were struggling to find markets for their products. In signing the Agricultural Adjustment Act on May 12, 1933, two months into his presidency and 90 years ago, Roosevelt altered the course of American agriculture with the first Farm Bill. Our focus here, and I guess the lesson, is that many of the protesters arrived at an accommodation with the new regime, accepting quote-unquote half a loaf now in terms of wheat allotment, checks and refinanced mortgages instead of the pie-in-the-sky dreams of cost of production and the cooperative commonwealth. Some, of course, continued to resist the sirens of expediency and accommodation at least a little bit longer. What just exactly is meant by cost of production in this context, I'm not quite sure. I tried to find out, but it is, you know, traditionally a, um, a sub, uh, shall we say, a subgroup or a, or a predecessor to the labor theory of value, which in a way is a bit more petty bourgeois in the way that, you know, you have to put out some money as a farmer for seeds and, uh, you know, some uh, some tools. There are some costs which farmers have that proletarians don't have, which is why I assume that they, uh, you know, uh, tried to popularize this 
instead of the labor theory of value. You know, people working for their, themselves don't have that mindset, is what I'm thinking. Um, which, I mean, probably a smart move by the Communist Party of America. Anyway, yet most observers agreed that the Depression era insurgency peaked in 1933 and had pretty much wound down by the 1936 election. It was now that a clique of industrialists, politicians, propagandists and bankers saw an opportunity of further undermining the small-sized farmers and catalyze the process of conglomeration, which had already begun, either by direct purchase of large swaths of land through forced sales or by indeptment under big ag corporations. One of their big weapons was the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Cause we like living right and being free We don't make a party out of loving But we like holding hands and pitching woo We don't let our hair grow long and shaggy like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee A place where even squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the courthouse White lightning still the biggest thrill of all Leather boots are still in style for manly footwear Beads and Roman sandals won't be seen And football's still the roughest thing on campus And the kids here still respect the college dean And I'm proud to be a rookie from Muskogee A place where even squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the courthouse White lightning still the biggest thrill of all and white lightning still the biggest thrill of all. The criminalization of hemp hid then behind the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933 and 1938, the two first farm bills. And though the most reactionary sectors of the US Senate called the bills out for being communist or fascist, we know it was a liberal reform 
that split discontent farmers organizing beyond their petty bourgeois family settler interests. You know. <laughs> mm. Senator Josiah Bailey, though for all the wrong conservative reasons, since he was also a segregationist and a white supremacist who filibustered anti-lynching legislation in 1938, called the AAA the perfect model of fascism. And yeah, this is the Agricultural Adjustment Act, right? The AAA which despite his somewhat accurate suspicion still makes him the perfect kind of egghead. <laughs> That's a chickenization joke for you. <laughs> yeah, you have to sign up to the Patreon so you, so you get my jokes, man. Or re-listen to some of Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon Kong's really early episodes. Uh, the farm bill is complicated and I do not know enough to elaborate beyond, you know, the broad strokes that I have just trying to explain um, regarding what it did to the political organizing of US farmers, which for the record I think is the most interesting. Something which even the Spartacus homepage fails to sufficiently mention. But what we do see, uh, as was suggested before, was an increase in the numbers of farms and at no time had there been as many farms of the ideal 10 to 50 acres size for cannabis growing at the time of the first bill. And then, by the second, a beginning of a trend of fewer but bigger farms that lasts until this day. My thinking is that to see a revitalized resurgence in independent small farms and co-ops and self-sustainable family farms was definitely not compatible with the oligarchs' latifundia aspirations, who were preparing for the next step of Ford and Chrysler etc. motorization. Thus the first farm bill of 33 got them conspiring, and the second of 1938 initiated another trend more suitable to their collective interests as a class. With four major droughts throughout the 30s, known commonly as the Dust Bowls. Cannabis, possibly the least capital-intensive cultivar most suitable for abandoned, marginalized and severely damaged soil, started to become a major problem. What if these farmers started saving their ass by planting their relatively drought-resistant crop on land they were supposed to leave? It would break the whole formula of capital intensification. It would furthermore in the long term have revitalized the soil, put money in the pockets of the desperate and halt the caravans of Okies, subsequently cutting off the transfer of their lands to those who had the capital to get big rather than getting out. But cannabis had been in decline since the 1850s, reasons for which we have spent three episodes explaining. So why would anyone grow hemp on it? we might ask. Battling dust bowls in this way is a large-scale planned economy project, surely far away from the conceptual economical organizing of family farms split into their separate biblical accounting units by the New Deal. This argument is uh, true, 
Which brings us to the interesting story of George W. Schlichten's decorticator machine. We have throughout the series made a point about there being something quite odd about the fact that this decorticator machine only arrives at the end of the mechanical era when hemp had been such a popular crop for such a long time. I explain this by focusing on the disinterest of the Russian Latifundia owners of the second half of the 19th century, whom as absentee landlords were more interested in investing in urban industry, while at the same time in, for example, Kentucky, hemp farming was being held back as a mediocre crop by the Whitney family via the Navy, by far the single biggest consumer of hemp. There are many reasons for this, but historically I believe we are looking at an overdetermined blind spot of research and development funding by the large-scale agricultural interests of the bourgeoisie. Mechanical tools for small-scale and cooperative mid-size farming are still today a major problem in Europe and America. Much of the necessary means of production in the growing movement of permaculture, regenerative farming, etc. seems to be held back by a great degree due to limited industrial reproduction of said means. These production tools, fit for any local commercial end of ours, not destined for export, are simply not prioritized in a neoliberal or social democratic world of subsidies and bullshit jobs. Nor would industrialists make them when they too are only interested in export farming. However, I have noticed a different story on Alibaba in China where the amount, diversity and prices of the means of agricultural small-scale production is simply amazing and make my mouth water. I'm serious, I can sit for hours looking at different de-husk machines doing their thing with different produce. Nonetheless, for some reason, it is seemingly impossible to import them to Japan on your own, even though they would fit like a hand in the glove for the needs of the remaining family farms over here. I might even go so far as to say that it is as if the Saibatsus like Mitsubishi is actually copying some of the mechanical solutions coming out of China and adding thousands of yen for futuristic designs and simple branding. Mechanical solutions, which I'm quite convinced, have always been the result of a lot of trial and error research by the workers, i.e. the peasants, uh, or slaves. I don't buy for a second, for example, that 28-year-old Eli Whitney single-handedly made the cotton gin in 10 days, as the story goes. If he was actually involved to any significant degree at all, it was as part of an unofficial work team of experienced slaves, black men and women who had no choice but to stand there and think about how to pick cotton better. The lone genius working undisturbed on his own, all from scratch, is a well-crafted mythology about how the general intellect comes to manifest itself in material technology. Market-oriented positivists and technognostics will say that a peasantry with these demands of these tools only exists in the aforementioned China because they are far behind the West in their development. 
I would say development is not a monolithic category of change and add that China's development is less asymmetrical and more inclusive and broader. Urbanization, deindustrialization and latifundiasation are not the only factors by which one can measure historical trajectories or coefficients of innovation. Granted, in a better, more localized and sustainable world, fit to withstand pandemic lockdowns and or climate change's effect on the vulnerable global supply lines, every agricultural commune would have a small steel processing plant at its disposal, which it shares with other agricultural communes of similar needs and sizes in its vicinity, something which did happen to a great degree during the Cultural Revolution, before Deng tried to break that self-sufficient network up. A network which undeniably performed the most rapid poverty reduction in human history and GDP rise, if you like. But again, that's not my kind of yardstick. Anyways, Schlichten's decorticator machine seems to have met with similar problems of industrial investors not wanting to mass produce something which is not going to be used for mass production of the export kind that they have in mind. Much of the information about Schlichten comes from a book called uh, The Schlichten Papers, written and published by Don Wirtschafter in uh, 1994. A lot of interpretations are floating around on the internet about this story. Personally, as I have sort of hinted at, I don't think this is where the conspiracy begins or has its main evidence, or rather, I think the story is, uh, you know, an indicative symptom of a bigger historical problem, which in many ways is the sum total of many conspiracies. Uh, I say this being strategic because I have also seen, quote-unquote, skeptics attack the larger thesis by focusing on this event alone, since, unfortunately, many sensationalist writers uh, of the hemp activist kind have reproduced what... uh, Uh, Don Wirtschafter has put forward in a very sloppy way. I could not get my hands on the book in question, but uh, one less sensationalist outline of the story appears in, for example, uh, The Great Book of Hemp by Rowan Robinson and other articles out there in various uh, somewhat peer-reviewed journals. In uh, 1914, the circulation of daily newspapers had increased to more than 28 million copies, in America that is, and supplying newsprint was an increasing concern. Schlichten had investigated many kinds of plants for possible use in making paper, including corn and cotton. He found that hemp herds could be made into paper of higher grade than ordinary news stock. So the hemp herd, by the way, is the, the very interior core of the hemp stem after you've separated the uh, the bust fibers that can be made into, well, clothes or uh, ropes, etc. A machine of his could produce one ton of fiber when managed by three people, which should be compared to the hitherto average of 30 kilo a day by one person with a wooden handbrake, which basically means that one person with the decorticator Uh, could be doing the work of 10 with a handbrake. Impressive, but still not interesting to the latifundists in the colonies, obviously, 
for whom manual labor is already more than 10 times cheaper than buying the machine. However, potentially interesting in the core market proximity uh, of the United States and Europe, maybe. Uh, as described in Schlichten's US patent number 1308376, 1st of July 1915, quote, the fiber produced is at once ready and suitable for carding or combing without any further treatment such as degumming or retting and leaving the fiber soft, pliant and adhesive and in its unimpaired natural strength and color. End of quote. So who was Schlichten? Well, Schlichten was born in Germany in 1862. He built his machine on an already existing German model from the late 1880s. He had put over $400,000 of his own money into developing the decorticator and needed to find a market where he could recoup some of that investment. In 1916, he took the first production of hemp's liver to the New York market, where it sold for a record price of $100 a ton, more than any other fiber had previously. Experts had pronounced it even better than the Italian hemp, which together with the Russian was of the highest grade standard. He sold his entire first batch to a spinning mill owned by John D. Rockefeller and was paid a record premium of $100 a ton. Afterwards, the mill offered to buy the exclusive rights to the invention and at a higher price than Schlichten had wanted, but he declined the offer. Schlichten eventually got in contact with another group of investors surrounding a newspaper syndicate called UPA, that is the United Press Association, which was formed by a merger of three other syndicates by primarily Edward Willis Scripps and Milton A. McRae, two East Coast-based news moguls who were brought over to California by a certain Harry Timken industrialist and owner of an important bearing manufacturer who introduced them to Schlichten. From what I can gather, they were all initially on board with the idea of reorganizing the up and downstream industries of the manufacturing of newspapers around the new material, that is, the innermost hemp herd. An astronomical, if not impossible task, to say the least which uh, might actually be all we need as an explanation for what is to come. One thing that must have motivated the men was the increasing price of timber paper, as was made clear by Schlichten in a report to his potential investors in 1917. Quote, the time will come when wood cannot be used for paper anymore. It will be too expensive or forbidden. We have got to look for something that can be produced annually. It takes 12 years before you have an acre grown into spruce. In 12 months I have a harvest of 50 tons produced. It is actually a crime to chop down trees to get a small percentage of paper." End of quote. So these are cut you know, pieces of the full speech. Schlichten was not alone in asserting that a change was coming. A year earlier, the USDA bulletin number 404 Hemp herds as paper making material, a very famous piece of uh, papers or collection of papers in these circles, also tell us that the time of ti timber paper is coming to an end 
and that hemp must replace it. Quote, there appears to be little doubt that under the present system of forest use and consumption, the present supply cannot withstand the demands placed upon it. By the time improved methods of forestry have established an equilibrium between production and consumption, the price of pulpwood may be such that a knowledge of other available raw materials may be imperative. However, two weeks after Schlichten's report, without explanation, the investors suddenly reversed their position. They were now convinced, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt, end of quote, that hemp was not economical for making newspaper. The Great Book of Hemp claims this was due to the economical impact of World War I, uh, high taxes and other considerations which deterred Scripps, McRae and Timken from financing the Schlichten decorticator. Other considerations here uh, could be something I found in an article called The Origins of Cannabis Prohibition in California, which is from the late 90s, which has something interesting to tell us, despite its author being very skeptical of any parapolitical reasoning, as made clear in the conclusion. Quote, the origins of cannabis prohibition in California defy the traditional explanation of marijuana prohibition as related in the story of the Federal Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. Unlike its federal successor, the 1913 law had nothing to do with the quote-unquote reefer madness campaign, the propaganda of William Randall First, or the bureaucratic machinations of Harry Anslinger. Still less was it due to a fanciful conspiracy of Hearst and DuPont to suppress industrial hemp, as proposed by some modern-day hempsters. End of quote. Now, this might be all well and fine in terms of the different specific context of the 1913 state law of California, but we will see eventually how quote-unquote fanciful the greater global event of the 30s is in due time. Nonetheless, California, as you will recall, is where Schlichten's experiment is taking place. And though the law was passed in obscurity in 1913, the article author Dale H. Geringer gives a convincing case for it being so obscure that the legal agents even forgot about it. However, earlier in the article, he also tells us that the Los Angeles Times ran the best early coverage about marijuana in the period before 1920. Included was an account of the state's first medical marijuana, RST. A Mexican maid who insisted that she was raising marijuana tea for stomach trouble. The maid was arrested under an Orange County ordinance that made it a misdemeanor to possess or cultivate marijuana. A misdemeanor to cultivate marijuana in the state of California, you say. And in the footnote we find out that it became a misdemeanor in the year 1917, just as the final stages of the deal between Schlichten and the others was supposed to be signed. Hmm. Didn't see anyone else make this connection on the internet, despite a lot of speculation from all sides, so I thought I would tell you about it, dear listener. 
Personally, as you know, I still think the story is only interesting if the activists were to put it in the greater context of the history of technology and agriculture. What Herrer, what Herrer and many of the activists should have done is of course to read Marx and understand that the politico-economic friction that the Schlichten machine, the Corticator machine met was put there as a consequence of the general attitude of a historical movement, its families, historical blocks and classes. Herrer has done a great work of piling information together. It's not that. He is the OG author in some way. He didn't even have internet when he started off. Thus I admire his blue-collar spirit for putting in the hours for research. But I'm sick and tired of his psychophant potheads fucking up the essentials. Smoke and drink as much as you can handle, but in the words of Peter Tosh, you must know your limits. Despite Schlichten's 1917 bumper crop of 14 to 16 foot tall hemp, which it seems true attracted national attention and coverage from the major newsreel companies as well, which it should, I mean that's cool and very important. Nonetheless, I think what the investors told him was simply true. The worldwide problem was that though cannabis hemp herd is superior to timber pulp in most respects, the American paper industry was not then and is not now, judging from discussions in the hemp magazines I've been reading, equipped to handle hemp pulp, and the cultivation of hemp is not yet extensive enough to supply the market. Not now, not a hundred years ago. Why? Well, as I have made clear in the previous episodes, because at the time of hemp's decline in the 1850s, when the paper pulp chemicals were invented, an unimaginable amount of acres of forests were growing out there for free, protected only by the wandering ghosts of indigenous ancestors. The bourgeoisie history of technological change is structured as much by the cheapest roots of thieving as it is by new inventions. Hey, you mugs. Uh, I mean, gentlemen. Well, well, it's Lauren Hardy, as if I didn't know. Hello, boys. This is Pete Smith, as if you didn't know. Say, I'd like your help here for a minute. Do you mind? No, of course not. I just want you lads to show the audience how much wood the average person tows. Wood? Got any? No, like most guys, you don't realize how many articles made of wood products you carry around. For instance, that newspaper. Yup, that newspaper is largely made of trees, wood pulp. Of course, most people know that, but many people don't know that a lot of other objects come from a wood base. Take Stan's glasses. The rims of plastic. About 60% of plastic is wood flour. Powdered wood, my friend. Got a fountain pen? Just as I thought, plastic barrels. Okay, gents, anything else in your pocket? Be careful of fish hooks, Stan. A billfold. Imitation leather made with cellulose acetate, a wood product. Uh-oh, what's up? Why, Mr. Laurel. Oh, sure, your wife, of course. Anyway, they're rayon, another wood product. Well, what else, boys? A cigarette case? A plastic. Also, a cigarette holder. More plastic. Any more wood, my lad? 
No, but there's wood in his hat. The sweatband. Right, more imitation leather. A new spring hat, eh? Ouch. More? Yup. A pipe, the bowl of which is wood. The stem, plastic. Book matches. These matches are wood pulp. So is the cover. It's amazing the amount of wood we use. Ain't it the truth? And now a pen knife. The handle, plastic. Let's see what's in the suitcase, boys. The suitcase, do you mind? That's it. Let's see what we have here. Any slippers? Yes, here we are. They're real leather like your shoes and belt, but tanned and made durable by tan bark from the forest. Then, too, the counters and insoles are wood fiber. Okay, Ollie, let's proceed. Wood in bottles? Well, hardy. Uh, hardly. No pun intended. Anyway, witch hazel and cascara are just two of several hundred drugs and remedies from trees. Furthermore, to reverse that global infrastructure and return to another natural fiber is asking three aging senior Americans to do something which, as you recall, it took the entire Napoleonic War and then also the Crimean War for the collective bourgeois class of the entire British Empire to feel the economic pressure to do as they moved from complete Russian hemp dependence to Bengali dependence, a process which took just about a century. There might be something fishy going on here, undoubtedly. Rockefeller is involved after all, but I think it primarily is an indication of an obnoxiously naive belief in the market held by cannabis activists to think that the story has so much more to offer than a rather common contradiction of political economic domination. In a way, we have explained then already why it could go no further, but we need to look closer since two magazines, Popular Mechanics and Mechanical Engineering, repopularized Schlichten's machine during the New Deal some two decades later. Time moving faster in the 20th century than it did in the 19th. We see with stats from the USDA and a congressional testimony in 1937 that already by the beginning of the 30s, Cultivated hemp acreage had been doubling in size in America almost every year from the time it hit bottom acreage, 1930, when 1,000 acres were planted in the US, to 1937, when 14,000 acres were cultivated. With plans to continue to double that acreage annually in the foreseeable future, an assessment, I take it, based on their at least not being any unforeseeable obstacles to the bureaucratic practicality of the plant in question, as the decorticator became more popular. As Herrer points out, the Popular Mechanics article was the very first time in American history that the term quote-unquote billion dollar was ever applied to any U.S. agricultural crop. If we take some time to read the popular mechanics article in question, then they also state some of the problems as the following. Quote, One obstacle in the onward march of hemp is the reluctance of farmers to try new crops. 
The problem is complicated by the need for proper equipment at a reasonable distance from the farm. The machine cannot be operated profitably unless there is enough acreage within driving range and farmers cannot find a profitable market unless there is machinery to handle the crop. End of quote. Again, this is a circular problem of social organization and moods of production, which is what Ford was coming down hard on at the time, as we saw in an earlier episode with his war against the, quote, <laughs> Jewish alien communist co-ops, end of quote, which uh, potentially could have collectively owned uh, Schlichten decorticator machine and solved some of the other logistical problems of small to mid-scale farming. There is actually a somewhat similar debate between Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong going on in the 50s, when they are discussing whether tractors should be publicly or collectively owned, with uh, Cho and Lai suggesting a big state-owned tractor pool where people go from different villages to pick up a public tractor, whereas Mao, of peasant birth himself, knew that the best maintenance would be performed by the unit of the extended family village itself, if they were all collectively given a tractor to make personal use of. Needless to say, the family village of work brigades and work teams provided with the means of production by the state is not the petit bourgeois family, nor is it a co-op. But before we get into historical alternatives to the capitalist fate of hemp, let's see what else is being put forward in the article. Another obstacle is that the blossom of the female hemp plant contains marijuana, a narcotic and it is impossible to grow hemp without producing the blossom. Federal regulations now being drawn up require registration of hemp growers, and tentative proposals for preventing narcotic production are rather stringent. However, the connection of hemp as a crop and marijuana seems to be exaggerated. The drug is usually produced from wild hemp, or loco weed which can be found on vacant lots and along railroad tracks in every state." End of quote. Yes, and this is where the plot thickens. This is what is until today on everyone's mind. And a mind set like that does not come out of nowhere. The confusion of hemp with the youth assassinating narcotic was not a spontaneous phenomenon. Indeed, it is so ridiculous that the article written the year after the passing of the ban is basically taking it for granted that it will soon be clarified that it is the bushy psychoactive strains of the plant, not the skinny hemp fiber strain of nil THC which is being referred to. After all, as we saw in the early episodes, it was hemp trade with hemp powered boats that literally had made Congress and the Senate a forum of a modern nation. Surely this had not been forgotten, right? Thus eventually, to continue our investigation into the conspiracy, I guess we also need to find out who was involved in the confusion that would make sure that the petrochemical chemical demanding natural fibers of cotton and timber etc. remained dominant and the lacuna of their capacities the things that cotton and timber couldn't do, was additionally covered by more petrochemical synthetic fibers, 
rather than cannabis. This is Harry J. Anslinger, Commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. This would be the regularly enforced and regularly disputed motley crew of Harry J. Anslinger as the face of the repressive apparatus his uncle-in-law, Andrew Mellon, as the face of the juridico-political apparatus, William Hurst as the face of the media apparatus, and Irene Dupont et al. of the Duponts as the face of that which would come to define the new biology, the Green Revolution, and the second modern agricultural revolution. It is true, as Lukács says in his History and Class Consciousness, that the bourgeoisie is not a unified class. We should not forget this. But should things superficially point towards the contrary, and this brings us to the insight of Gramsci, we can be sure that what is at work is a Caesaristic state of exception which aims through its immense introduction to everyday life and ever-increasing numerous personnel to stabilize the military corporate state into a corporate police state. Natural fibers have, by the time of nylon's introduction, done everything the synthetics will soon aim to do, but exotic fibers depends on colonialism. And colonialism, though it tries to depend on policing, is by the time of our subject matter historical transition much too volatile to maintain such pure states of corporate governance and deteriorate into war again and again. Now, furthermore, they call it a war on drugs, but it is a much more complicated class collaborative compromise of colonizers and the colonized a policiary paramilitary compromise by which the relatively anonymous and autonomous forces behind Anslinger successfully introduced a truly global alternative to the decaying British imperial model. But also, beyond this extremely traumatic yet useful and economically productive veneer of moral prohibition, behind the explicit hatred for blacks and brown people, their assumed customs and ways of life. The Caesaristic bargain is also, for a brief period of time, a neutralizer of the involved actors' differences as members of the bourgeoisie, and it unites the corporate power under the Eagle Standard. To explain what the Eagle Standard is and why the historical necessity of its imperialism was about to make the move from the mechanized to the motorized era of agriculture, I have for a long time tried to lay forward, in quite a few episodes, how the get big or get out maxim is an inherently fascist mood of organizing agriculture. We have historical evidence to back this up simply in terms of Spain, Italy, Hungary, Germany, Romania, etc. being brought to this level of power by a truce between the older latifundi aristocracy and the new heavy industry of their nation-states. Granted, the new agriculture will further entwine these historical blocks, one new and one ancient, at times and in some places to a point where they become identical. For remember, 
and I'm quoting Lukács again. Bourgeoisie and proletariat are the only pure classes in bourgeois society. They are the only classes whose existence and development are entirely dependent on the course taken by the modern evolution of production, and only from the vantage point of these classes can a plan for the total organization of society even be imagined. End of quote. Country's rave is jive, jive, jive. This modern treat makes life complete. Jive, jive, jive. All the jive is gone. All the jive is gone. I'm sorry, gay, but you got here late. All the jive is gone. All the jive is gone. All the jive is gone. So come on in and drink some gin. All the jive is gone. aristocratic latifundists, as well as senatorial, colonial and equestrian slave owners, had to be tied into the bourgeoisie economy as to reconstitute its production within this new matrix. Due to the capital-intensive nature of this farming apparatus, as it relies on all the traditional industries of the bourgeoisie, as well as the production commodities of its mines and factories, it must lead to internal conflict and resistance from the affected classes. The upper, the middle, the lower and the subaltern of the ancien regime. And in the most simple terms possible, the historical objective of fascism is to neutralize these contradictions. So of course, 
we will see the same thing happening in the USA, but in a more disguised form due to its unique societal class structure in comparison to Europe. This is the real conspiracy in plain sight, made evident by the fact that the American Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 eventually, successfully, made hemp illegal all over the world, and as such, juridically trumped any other conditions, environmental, political, economical, social, etc. Skeptics will say, oh, but natural fiber was already on the way out and plastic would not need a conspiracy. Maybe, <laughs> but that's speculative. What we know is that they didn't take that risk of leaving it to the free market or whatever. And furthermore, today, there are plenty of indications that the petrochemical plastic era is already coming to an end. Not so much an evolutionary inevitability as yet another trend of surplus value whims, which comes and goes. For it too, it's looking to buy some time. And it just so happens that DuPont and BASF are at the forefront of bioplastics. And I'm sure we will soon see them have their own trade-marketed cannabis strains. Finally, if one bears this in mind and accepts the general historical logic of it, whilst remembering that Marx himself saw the hemp-peasant communes of Tsarist Russia as a stepping stone to communism, which could successfully avoid intermediary bourgeoisie revolutions. And if we add to this, as we of course should, the aforementioned abnormality to the global hemp ban, as it is opposed primarily by China and the Soviet Union and the other nations of the so-called Eastern Bloc, until they too were in part conquered by neoliberal jurisdiction in the late 80s during their so-called years of contracts. Then one begins to see a clique of fascist American industrialists, landowners and bankers, which are of course primarily linked in by the vastness of their capital accumulation, but who also engage in making sure that the second agricultural revolution does not include cannabis sativa L in order to complete the transition to synthetic petrochemical fiber dependence. We do not have connections between each single member to each and every one of the others. We do not even know everyone involved. But we have some members who are focal points as well as other hubs such as magazines, parliamentary organizations, trusts and political agents within the legislative bodies of the United States. Primarily, we find the majority of them involved in the so-called Wall Street Putsch which I think our research is ready to shine some new light upon. And though this context, as far as I can tell, is never elaborated upon within the generic narrative of hemp activism, theories about the connections between the United States and Nazi Germany is of course a very popular topic. So, it's about time someone fused them together to provide a more accurate picture of the totality. A German-American link is elaborated upon in books such as Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan M. Katz, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler by Anthony Sutton, Trading with the Enemy by Charles Higham, The Nazi Hydra in Fascist America by Jedon and Hawkins, 
Who Financed Hitler by James and Susan Poole, as well as quite a lot of investigative interest in the matter coming from the Fourth International. The list goes on and on. Some are good, some are naive and embarrassingly stupid. I mean, how Sutton can spend an entire book trying to prove that, quote, in other words, we are suggesting that the Bolshevik revolution was an alliance of statist, statist revolutionaries and statist financiers aligned against the genuine revolutionary libertarian elements in Russia, end of quote. And then spend another entire book to prove the exact same thing about the Third Reich, and ipso facto suggest that it was all masterminded by Nazi-Leninist FDR, is an all-encompassing worldview which will stand forever as a cautionary tale regarding the dangers of Randian objectivism and its effects on the brain, whilst on weed or not. Now, that might come off as a joke, even though Ayn Rand herself did help popularize his theories. But what it is structurally a cautionary tale of is the billion-dollar project from the highest echelons of the state, i.e. the Hoover Institution, to contaminate the parapolitical field. What Jimmy Fallon Gong is calling conspiracytainment, a word which I like and which I think Sutton and the question of American-German relations are ripe with. I will get into this darkness of the anti-hemp conspiracy of the American oligarchy in the next episode of the finale, because of course it is not a coincidence that the aforementioned anti-hemp actors Irene Dupont, Andrew Mellon, William Hurst and Harry Anslinger were also open supporters of the Hitlerist cause in particular and international fascism in general. But first I think we have to continue to elaborate upon the broader global fate of cannabis and the other natural fibers that did not fit into the new order of the black ego. Let's clarify in what way the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics treated hemp differently. The house god of cannabis activism Jack Herer of The Emperor Wears No Clothes mentions the Soviet Union only in a single paragraph, and a really stupid paragraph at that, when he says that, quote, Anslinger told the Congress the communists would sell marijuana to American boys to sap their will to fight to make us a nation of zombie pacifists. Of course, the communists of Russia and China ridiculed this US marijuana paranoia every chance they got. In the press and at the United Nations, unfortunately, the idea of pot and pacifism got so much sensational world press for the next 20 years that eventually Russia, China and the Eastern Bloc communist countries that grew large amounts of cannabis outlawed marijuana for the fear that America would sell it or use it to make the communist soldiers docile and pacifistic. End of quote. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> what are you talking about here? <laughs> I mean, yes, there was a shift in attitude at one point, but that wasn't a consequence of Russia, China and the Eastern Bloc communist countries, first ridiculing Anslinger only then to take him more seriously than the US. The shift in attitudes coincide exactly with the neoliberal decollectivizing, privatizing coups by the Dungist and Yeltsin hangabout during the so-called years of contract. It's almost as if Herer, unofficial leader of hemp activism, 
wholeheartedly puts cannabis at the center of every context possible, except the most important, the Cold War contradiction of the 20th century. Why is that, we might ask, when he does not even excuse himself for not doing so, but does excuse himself for not elaborating upon the House of Rothschild's role in the Napoleonic Wars? I mean, if you're going to point a finger at a conspiracy too large to fathom, a rule of thumb in my book is point towards fascism, not the elders of Zion. In the book Dupont Dynasty, Behind the Nylon Curtain, we can read that the success of the Russian workers and their Bolshevik party was a threat to every capitalist in the world, and that it was also a personal blow to the Duponts. Since the Crimean War, over 50 years earlier, Tsarist Russia had been one of Dupont's best customers. In fact, the Tsar had been their very first customer in World War I, ordering 960,000 pounds of TNT on October 8, 1914. As late as August 1917, the capitalist government of Kerensky, still pursuing the unpopular war and licking its wounds from a popular insurrection a month before, ordered 20 million pounds of Dupont powder. As Dupont had an overabundance of war contracts, Kerensky's orders could not be accepted, although it gave Pierre, that is uh, Irene Dupont's brother, hope of even more profitable contracts in the future. Then came the Bolshevik insurrection in October to spoil it all. Socialists and workers' factory councils replaced Kerensky's corrupt regime. Overnight, the Dupont lost millions of dollars in contracts and bonds simply because the Russian people dared to demand an end to a slaughter that had become endless. In retaliation, the Armors of the Republic as the Duponts liked to call themselves, fully endorsed the American invasion of Russia from 1919 to 1922 and the futile but bloody attempt by Allied armies to overthrow the Soviet government of Lenin. The Duponts, however, were not prepared for the popular support given the Soviets in Russia, nor for the organized efficiency of the Bolshevik party. They fully anticipated quick victory with the strategy of intervention. Their confidence was no doubt bolstered by recent success in a similar, though more covert, intervention in Hungary, of which they had been a major part. I don't mean to dwell too much at the point at this point. Their evil needs no introduction. But a major hindrance to the possible world domination of Nyland is laid partially bare when one reads the article The History of Hemp in Russia by V. A. Serkov et al., at the Pensa Research Institute of Agriculture, because over there, since 1931, the country had launched a systematic work on breeding and seed production of agricultural hemp seed. During the years of Soviet power, the hemp industry was not only restored, but also widely advanced in new areas, both theoretical and geographical, such as Siberia. In the USSR, the main hemp-sowing regions were the central Black Earth region of the RSFSR, the forest steppe in southern Ukraine, Belarusia, the Volga region, northern Caucasus and western Siberia. 
Here breeding experiments of dioecious low THC varieties acquired state importance. And dioecious means uh, that there is one male and one female plant, right? Though there were experiments where the same plant has both qualities. With, I think particularly, there is a Japanese hemp variety which serves this purpose. Uh, but there are certainly more. In the state register of breeding achievements, we find that new varieties were introduced in which the content of the main narcotic substance, good old THC, was reduced to 0.1% or less. To date, 22 breeding drug-free varieties and hemp hybrids have been created in Russia, which are included in the state register of breeding achievements and are allowed to be used in the territory of the Russian Federation. In the Great Soviet Encyclopedia of 1937, it is reported that, quote, the socialist reconstruction of agriculture has dramatically changed the face of backward cannabis cultivation in the USSR. The unfolding Stakhanov movement in agriculture, in particular among the cannabis growers, provided higher yields of cannabis. And the Stakhanov is like the sort of, uh, uh, it was this movement of like, well, the workers avant-garde who started to organize the, the Soviets in extra productive ways. It became kind of like a culture, cultural phenomenon as well as a political and uh, economical. In 1936, a special meeting of the leaders of the party and government was held with the leaders in flax and hemp. A number of Stakhanovite carpet weavers were awarded orders of the union. After 1934, the cannabis crops began to recover. And if in 1934, the cannabis zone area was 598,000 hectares, then its crops in 1936 occupied 680,000 hectares, amounting to four-fifths of the world's total area under cannabis. A decree of the Council of People's Commissars of the USSR and the Central Committee of the CPSU, March 1934, granted special privileges and advantages for hemp crop on homesteads, backyards and floodplains. Preparation of hemp fiber from cannabis in the USSR in 1933 to 1934 reached almost 40,000 tons, and in 1934 to 35, 45,000 tons. Production of hemp oil from seeds in the USSR in 1933 amounted to 5,000 tons, and in 1934, 6.3,000 tons. End of quote. And for comparison then, uh, though I could not find just how much hemp oil is being produced in Canada every year, um, the total land mass under hemp cultivation in Canada is 685 hectares. And that still makes them the sole source for the growing hemp industry in America. So 685 hectares compared to some 600,000 hectares gives us a rough idea of, you know, what they were actually doing. But it was, but it's not only the sheer astronomical scale of their production, which is impressive. I told you before about my experiments uh, on collodial silver to feminize seeds. 
Well, in these more esoteric areas of Soviet hemp research, we find the field of electroculture, which is the application of electricity, magneticism, monochrome light and sound, which can greatly stimulate the growth of plants. According to Rowan Robinson in the Great Book of Hemp, and another called Robert A. Nelson, uh, this little-known technology, electroculture, can accelerate growth rates, increase yields, improve crop quality, protect plants from diseases, insects and frost, and reduce the requirements for fertilizer and pesticide. According to B. R. Lazarenko and J. B. Gorbatovskaya, in 1966 the two Soviet researchers reported that, quote, under the influence of the electric current, the numerical proportions between hemp plants of different sexes was changed by comparison with the control to give an increased number of female plants by 20 to 25 percent. Then they go on to say that reports that the characteristics acquired by the plants in electrically treated soil are transmitted by inheritance to the third generation are particularly interesting. End of quote. Now anybody with some wits about them knows just why Soviet agriculture gets very interesting, controversial and just delicious in the way that it upsets people when it comes to inheritance and the pointing out of details that undermine the general fascist and unfortunately most popularized understanding of genetics. With that being said, I have no practical experience of electroculture, but it sounds awesome and there is an existing movement out there which as far as I can tell goes back to a Russian engineer in France called Georgi Lakovsky, who at the turn of the last century used Tesla coils to increase the growth of various plants. Yes, comrade, surging forward, electrician in the field. 2000 wolves coming up. His uh, French colleague, Justin Christophe Fleureau, published a book in 1924 called Increase in Harvests and Rescue of Deceased Trees by Electroculture, Removal of Nitrates and Other Chemical Fertilizers Rendered Useless by Terocelestial Electromagnetics. Uh, he says one experiment of his resulted in seven feet clover plants. And uh, I mean, they tend to be just about one feet. So if, I mean, they can get uh, taller as well. It's a problem, I guess, is that you often cut them, right? But, um, you know, if you help me there, listener, reach 300 pa- Patreons, I promise I will recreate some of these early machines and document the results in relation to my micro- microbial approach uh, with the help of a USB microscope and the you know images of bacterial activity before and after. A hypothesis I couldn't find anywhere out there, so this would you know really be something original. Now. Another interesting question is highlighted in Chris Duval's 2014 book uh, Cannabis, namely the question whether any truly wild populations survive of cannabis, or if wild types simply escaped long ago from cultivation. Um, I have touched upon the question of so-called CWRs before, uh, that is the crop wild relatives, 
since it's very close to my heart and I believe here lies the only possible future of breeding and gene modification experiments. It is in this field we must look in order to replace our weak, inbred, high-response varieties as the climate change and the chemicals they depend on become too expensive. Um, I mean, when I say genetical modification here, this is a completely different kind of genetical modification, right? It's not the, the lab-orientated uh, uh, making things up <laughs> just so that you can get a patent on it. I'm talking about, you know, trying to preserve probably the vastest and most important gene pool uh, that exists. I can't remember if I said this on um, my own show if, or if it was an interview on another, but there is something called, for example, evolutionary uh, grains, which is, you know, it's not the same as the oldest, um, you know, like ancient grains like einkorn, though I think often they are, uh, they often do overlap, like often very, very old grain varieties are also evolutionary uh, grains. And, and what that means is that, for example, you know how cannabis today, the problem is with like, you know, if you read the hemp instructions and, and things like that, like there's only wild uh, cannabis left in Nebraska, for example, in America. The rest have almost been eradicated. And those aren't truly wild varieties either. They are probably of the uh, aforementioned kind, you know, that escaped from, from plantations. But, you know, the, the point is, it goes to flowering when, when the light is 12 hours dark and 12 hours um, uh, light, right? That's usually how it goes. But there are, you know, other response varieties that uh, can pick up on things like temperature or just, you know, how long they've been growing. And so you can find other ways of timing your, you know, if you have dual cropping, for example, you want some for seeds and you want some for fibers or maybe you want some for the herd and the pulp. So uh, evolutionary strains then, like what, how they could solve these problems is that the genetic uh, base of some, you know, evolutionary grains is so, so vast that like in just one season, uh, let's say an einkorn then, like a, wheat, a really old wheat variety, even if they had been growing, you know, in Sweden since the Stone Age for like 2,500 years now and I took them somewhere else and uh, you know closer to the equator they would uh, sort of re-establish themselves adopt and already like within one season they would know sort of the, the new climate and the new patterns of uh, of the weather and the, the light that that they uh, that you know that controls their uh, natural life cycle so <laughs> that, that's really cool anyway uh, the documented search for crop wild relatives of cannabis begins with um, uh, cannabis sylvestris which first appeared in print in the 10th century but uh, may have referred then or subsequently to a mallow uh, that is the Alt Altaia cannabina so by the mid 1500s, uh, botanists had mostly abandoned the idea of wild type cannabis, at least in European environments. The idea that wild cannabis exists has come and gone, leaving behind uh, putative species like Erratica or Vulgaris or Spontanea. The idea gained then 
again greater acceptance in the 1860s once Soviet botanists began publishing in English their studies of cannabis in Central Asia. Few Western scholars have seen these publications, uh, though in 1924 a Soviet botanist designated the wild type Ruderalis, which connotes weedy in botanical Latin. Uh, I think this is the cross that makes, for example, the, the lowrider variety. I think like those kind of out of flowering varieties. I'm not sure if that, you know, they are all dependent on this gene, but I've heard uh, some connections to this. Um, I'm sure, you know, there, there are loads of things that we could find out. It's not just, you know, such an interesting thing as out of flowering or uh, feminization or, you know, dwarf uh, uh, height. Um, there is probably things like pest resistance, drought resistance, um, UV resistance. I don't know, you know, like a, they say all the time, right? Like, oh, this one has that much CBD. And then, you know, they sometimes go on to list some of the other uh, cannabinoids. But they don't really know how many there are, right? And they don't know really what a particular pattern might, um, you know, what's the purpose of a particular pattern for you know for what ailments uh you know for the plant itself as well as you know the human in the medical sense right or just nutritional etc etc the possibilities are endless is what i'm trying to say out there in the wild but they are not endless in the laboratory you know there you only have a specific stock of kept genetics for you know whatever erroneous reasons of whatever trend in science at its you know specific moment in time um, of course i wish to speak more about soviet agricultural projects in a future episode when we return to alternatives to the prevalent uh, global eco-fascist model so let's leave the mystery of the cwr at that and let's return to uh, the hemp conspiracy <laughs> Alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I should get a kick out of you Some get a kick from champagne I'm sure that if I took even one sip That would bore me terrifically too Yet I get a kick out of you I get a kick every time I see you standing there before me I get a kick though it's clear to me you obviously don't adore me I get no kick in a plane flying too high 
with some guy in the sky is my idea of nothing to do yet I get a kick out of you
get a kick out of you. Now, there is no easy, truly comprehensible way to tell this story, so it's going to, you know, get a bit anachronistic from now on, as I try to explain it as thoroughly as possible, whilst using cannabis as the major, orientating signifier of meaning. If we, if we start with their economic incentives, uh, examples of which we have hinted at throughout the series, um, then if we were to frame it, as the incentive of the modern American oligarchy to think of agriculture as a big business, then we interestingly enough find that its manifesto was written by none other than the father of Courtney Whitney. You remember the man who burned and possibly with bioweapons salted the ground of one of the last remaining vestiges of natural fibers that could compete with the synthetics Um, as communist-controlled Manila hemp went up in flames in the Philippines. The father's name was Milton Whitney. Milton was at the beginning of the 20th century the chief of the new Bureau of Soils of the USDA and and as such issued reports and gave speeches asserting that soil fertility was inexhaustible. I'm not kidding. As late as 1908, Whitney argued, quote, the soils of the world are not wearing out, end of quote, and he considered widespread assertions to the contrary erroneous. And that's from Whitney, 1909. Uh, a Stuart Schulman tells us why, in the abstract to his article, The Business of Soil Fertility. Quote, During the Progressive Era, an urban agrarian wing of the conservation movement made soil fertility a highly salient issue in the press. This article examines the extent and causes of a convergence of urban agrarian concern between 1907 and 1916, which was one of the first sustainable agriculture policy networks in United States history. Businessmen and journalists helped put soil fertility on the national policy agenda. Existing institutions, such as the United States Department of Agriculture, were not considered adequate guardians of the food supply for an expanding industrial nation. Urban agrarians uh, financed and managed soil fertility propaganda and agrarian legislative campaigns based on the recognition that existing institutions lacked the resources necessary to convert traditional farmers to the emerging scientific soil-preserving paradigm. In an era punctuated by debate over the rising costs of living, the new agriculture was known to many in the movement simply as business-like farming. End of quote. Right, so the big business on Whitney's mind was tobacco, made evident by his first book from 1898 called simply Tobacco Soils. His relative, William C. Whitney, whom we also met before, um, William is a very good friend, by the way, of uh, Hearst, William Hearst, who has uh, the latter to thank for his rise within the Democratic Party, of which Hearst was also a member. And he was also on the board, uh, William Whitney that is, of the American Tobacco Company, a company that came to be with the help of other members of the Whitney family, together with John D. Rockefeller, who arranged the funding for James Buchanan, Duke, to buy out his competitors. Duke lived just around the corner of Payne Whitney Mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York, of which, um, 
a graduation thesis titled Origins of the American Tobacco Company from John Hopkins said in the 1960s, uh, quote, during the 1880s and 1890s, this is when uh, Milton starts to be, you know, starts writing as well. I don't think the Bureau of Soils, the like uh, the USDA has not been founded yet, but anyway. The innovations of James Buchanan Duke first disrupted and then rationalized the American tobacco industry. Duke's career and the early history of his American Tobacco Company serves as case studies in both the history of business administration and in the coming of quote-unquote big business to the United States. Uh, end of the entire quote. So that's, so that's you know, big business overall, not just agricultural big, big business. And uh, here we have another, you know, invention that predates the hemp machine by half a century due to bourgeois botanical preferences. But we also have a mention of Rockefeller, who also appears frequently in the early days of the Soil Bureau. Um, Cyril G. Hopkins was a leader of the University of Illinois Agricultural Experiment Station, and he was a frequent critic of Milton Whitney's positions. In one circular, topic, typical of his tone throughout uh, the years of pro professional writing, Hopkins mocked the federal agency, quote, and so this is him mocking Milton, let's see. <laughs> the persistent and long-continued teaching of the Federal Bureau of Soils that the fertility of the soil can be indefinitely maintained without the restoration of plant food is widely promulgated by inspired press reporters and other prolific writers and gladly accepted by land agents and by landowners inexperienced in the management of truly depleted soils. No doctrine could be more pleasing. An inexhaustible national asset. A self-maintaining food supply. A dish from which we can eat and eat today, tomorrow and forever. A bank account that requires for its maintenance only the rotation of the checkbook among the members of the family. A philosopher's stone that creates an infinite supply of golden grain from infinite quantities of baser materials. <laughs> End of quote. And that's Hopkins then in 1910, page 341. There was a lot of infighting, you know, within the beckoning big ag movement as to whether Hopkins or Whitney was right, made problematic by their wanting to popularize middle class investment in the agricultural stock market, like urban middle class. Thus the questions became, you know, should we lie to keep the Ponce going or should we tell the truth as to actually do something about it and secure, you know, future, future incomes? Eventually, though, during the 20s, the vast majority of them would agree that Bosch and Haber of IG Farben had discovered the quote-unquote philosopher's stone with their synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, and any earlier concerns about quote-unquote country life, <laughs> which is how they sold the idea of an industrialized countryside uh, before World War II, went right out of the window in terms of actually preserving life in the country. In a way, Milton was bringing back home, you know, an attitude of American big ag business that had been growing in tandem with American colonial ambitions during the end of the 1800s. For our purposes, we have focused so far on two periods in the Philippines to determine the suspicious fate of Manila hemp, 
which uh, during World War II was made involved in Cold War activities before the Cold War, uh, at least anti-communist activities. And we will return to this Whitney in question, Major General Courtney Whitney, that is, when discussing his central involvement with the Yamashita's Gold and the Black Eagle Fund. But for now, I want you to exercise a thought experiment with me. Parallel with Hemp's disappearance after the 1850s, we see the Marines suffering a similar fate. But during the Filipino War and the American colonial wars, they regained their importance by reconstituting themselves, in my opinion, as a social formation very much similar in character to the old European trading companies, which had always been military trading companies sent out into the world to open up harbors with force and dictate anti-social contracts for what they called trade. As much as I think it is rewarding to go looking for proto-fascist tendencies in continental conservative movements of idealism, uh, you know, during the history of ideas that is the heyday of the bourgeoisie, it is, I believe, equally, if not more rewarding, to think of the early trading syndicates as a mishmash of pirateering, gangsterism, mercantilism, banking, insurance, intelligence gathering, etc. And despite the officiality of their names, such as the British East India Trading Company or the Dutch East India Trading Company, etc., they experience a relative autonomy in relation to their home countries, which allow them to function as independent international corporate bodies of political economy. And what is that, if not some kind of proto-fascist dream taken directly from the way Mussolini, as a mouthpiece of latter similar interests, expressed his historical role, or its historical role? To make sense of where I'm going with this, two-step analogy, let's begin to return to the aforementioned Wall Street putsch. All the four suspects of our extended anti-hemp troika supported several domestic pro-fascist groups in the 1930s. But it is not their involvement with these groups which will interest us for now. Uh, that will all be laid clear in the next episode, as promised. No, what we will concern ourselves with at the present is the seemingly odd choice of the persona stand-in for the Eagle Banner, which sought to install a certain Smedley Butler as a state of exception sovereign instead of FDR in 1933. Why Butler, one might ask? A question which I believe is perhaps made partly evident by the fact that he had served with the unhinged marines of the last episode in both the Philippines and in the Boxer Rebellion. But his involvement in US colonialism on behalf of its big ag ambitions had also led him to serve in the Banana Wars, a series of conflicts I would like to return to in a future miniseries to really answer this question. But summarizing for 15 minutes what I think could become more than a handful of future episodes, I'll say that it is not a coincidence that Smedley Butler served in the three major colonial campaigns of exotic fibers over which America exercised comprador colonial control, and that before becoming involved in the Wall Street Putsch, the last stop he did before returning to the US was those particular south of the border next door neighbors which the latecomer to the colonial game had now chosen to move all its natural fiber industry to 
from the unstable Pacific and Asia. Makes me so damn mad a whole lot of people speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 18. No. Let me tell you you something. I've been all over the world. I've seen you fellows on the streets in Washington. There isn't this well-behaved group of citizens in the world that's sitting right in this camp. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we have ever had. Pure Americanism. Willing to take this beating as you've taken it. Stand right steady. You keep every law. And why in the hell shouldn't you? Who in the hell has done all the bleeding for this country and for this law and, and this constitution anyhow but you fellas? Hemp activists like to talk about the Hemp for Victory film, which is an important piece of evidence, granted, but it was, as far as I can tell, a failure. And the real project of success was the relocation and expansion of Manila hemp to the kingdoms of the United Fruit Company. We saw how in colonial Philippines the Americans held on to it as a prized possession for better part of the entire first half of the 20th century from 1898 to 1946 with the short period of Japanese exception from 42 to 45 which in many ways tells us about the post-colonial comprador state the Philippines would become until today. America's holding on to it has been suggested by many more historians, certainly less noided than me, to be primarily due to the extremely lucrative business of Abaca Musa Textilis, Manila Hemp. The difference between the Marines of 1898 and the Junta it had become under Caesar MacArthur was that his supreme Pacific authority ranked higher than Wall Street ambition, which had been a problem half a century earlier. He did, to a much greater degree, what they, the Marines, had wanted to do since they took control in the First War, which was to eradicate this problematic crop out of fear for its guerrilla funding possibilities. The fact that nylon had also been introduced, though at this time by no means the dominant commodity it would become, surely made the opposition to such a decision a lot weaker. I found an interesting newspaper article from the interwar period which also suggests that the Americans were already losing their control over maritime Southeast Asia. A part of the world much too far flung argues the article and too unstable for such essential colonial pursuits as fiber plantations. 20 to 30 years after what I called the colonial hemp wars, a new kind of agricultural espionage is undermining the hyper-specialization of national monocrops, a by the way truly eco-fascist concept in its own right. Lansing State Journal writes on the 29th of July 1927 under the headline, quote, nations resort to form of theft, end of quote that Holland is stealing hemp seeds from islands uh, and that the US is retaliating by stealing tobacco seeds. All right, quote, The international stealing of farm products has grown to be almost a habit between Holland and the United States. London Bridge may fall down, but London merchants and banks do not. Buy in the cheapest market and sell in the dearest is their safe and conservative rule. 
Under Spain, London was never interested in destroying the Philippines' natural monopoly of Manila hemp, which was never grown outside the islands, for London had monopoly of the Manila hemp trade. But this drew toward an end with American occupation. London encouraged without the success the growing of a Manila hemp on British soil in the Far East. Holland proved to be the successful thief. It got Manila hemp seeds from the southern provinces of the Philippines and made successful plants in Sumatra and Borneo. These plantings are being expanded rapidly. Soon Dutch East India hemp will be a factor on the world market. End of quote. The article continues to explain the history of this espionage in general, with anecdotes about the Spice Islands, uh, cinnamon, etc., and later how America successfully retaliated by stealing Holland's famous tobacco. Now, something tells me that not only Butler, but also the Whitney's were involved in this again, because I find out that another Henry Howard Whitney had been famously involved in the American-Spanish War as a spy, um, strictly speaking, he seems to be from another lineage of the Whitney's than the others uh, of this series, but uh, on an open source family research wiki of the clan, they appear to be ultimately related. It's more than a bit obnoxious, of course, that the colonialists can be described as stealing from one another, but should one raise the question of biopiracy regarding the actual, initial, aboriginal ownership within quotes, they don't you know, generally think of it in this barbaric way. Uh, you know, in uh, conversation with people who think fondly of these days, uh, they would say you are confusing things. <laughs> the unnaturalness of ecofascism is also highlighted in the article, I think, which sent me digging deeper, finding out that Manila hemp had been almost impossible to economically cultivate outside the Philippines for more than half a century. Uh, my suspicions of the last episode have also gained more substance after finding out that the majority of the plantations in total, and of those which would later be burned, and possibly have its ground salted with an agricultural bioweapon, are found in Mindanao, where most of communist resistance has taken root and exists until today. All this continues to paint the picture of the true purpose of the revival of the marines, since the mystery of Abaca rootstocks was only partly sold at the time of the Banana Wars, which made sure a new geographical source of the essential fiber to the US finally became a possibility. Not only was this source closer to home, it also undermined the efforts of both the Japanese and the communists. While the marines were learning to land on foreign beaches, the bankers were learning to expand beyond the US borders too. Starting with a loan to Mexico by J.P. Morgan in 1899, they also experimented with financing foreign wars. US bankers had supported the British seizure of uh, Boer South Africa from 1899 to 1902 and Japan's war against Russia in 1904 and 1905. It was only a matter of time before the investors wanted to select the leaders of the countries they were investing in as well. During his presidency, Theodore Roosevelt had realized the potential of private finance to participate in systems of control. Between 1904 and 1907, he had quote-unquote solved 
a debt crisis in the Dominican Republic by transferring the Caribbean country's debt from European bondholders to Wall Street, while taking over its customs system. By Wall Street I mean ultimately the Morgan Whitney DuPont Mellon linked Guarantee Trust Company, which I jokingly mentioned at the intro, but which I encourage you to remember since it serves as a, you know, one of those hubs necessary to our story in order to link American colonialism, the fascist Wall Street putsch and the hemp ban. And what is starting to appear around the Guarantee Trust at this time was a privatized spin on what the imperial and colonial powers had done to China under the Boxer Protocol, which in 1901 had turned in effect the Qing customs system into a debt collection agency for foreign governments. A humiliating unequal treatise, which also forces the Qing to agree to allow foreign troops in 12 cities, which also borrowed from the way the British Empire had used private corporations to colonize places like North America, India and Egypt. To Americans at home, skeptical of imperialism, this new system of the Marines and the Guarantee Trust could be sold as what the banks called receivership, seizing assets to ensure repayment of a debt. It was just that, instead of a bank taking over a railroad, in this case the banks were taking over a country and her ecosystem. Butler and the Marines' instrumental involvement in the Boxer Protocol might explain further why he was later chosen for the Wall Street Putsch. I appeared before the Congressional Committee the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men which would be able to take over the functions of government. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, I have the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech and press. And to continue to paint the picture of the Marines as an autonomous junta of trade and brutal colonization, very much in the same regard as the European trading companies of centuries past, built on naval intelligence networks, industrial backers and bankers often far away from the public political headlights. We should note something about the Chinese jute fields and their cannabis fields, which at least geographically speaking, as far as I can tell, matched both the manila hemp of the Philippines and the jute in the Bengal combined. In 1923, Sun Yat-sen tried to take control of the customs houses in Guangdong province. 
So that is where Hong Kong is, for example, and Shenzhen, etc. Well, Guangdong as well. Which the foreign powers were still using to collect their indemnity per the terms of the treaty that ended the Boxer War. The US Navy dispatched four destroyers to intimidate Sun into submission. Furious and betrayed, Sun wrote an open letter in which he asked the question that had reverberated through Havana and Manila decades before. Quote, when we first started our revolution, the United States was our model and inspiration. Now we wonder, has the nation of Washington and Lincoln abandoned the ideal of liberty and regressed from a liberator to an oppressor? Question mark. We didn't know what the mission was, David M. Shoup, a future marine commandant, later recalled, thinking as a 23-year-old lieutenant in China. Quote, but we landed at the Standard Oil docks and lived in Standard Oil compounds and were ready to protect Standard Oil investments. I wondered at the time if our government would put all these marines in a position of danger where they might sacrifice their lives in defense of Standard Oil. Later I discovered that of course it would and did. It was only some years later that I learned that General Butler had been thinking the same way. I thought I had been alone in suspecting it." End of quote. Indeed, one of the Marines' most dangerous actions in China was done in service of the future ExxonMobil. On Christmas Eve 1927, two warehouses erupted into flames at the Standard Oil compound where the Marines were staying outside Tianjin. Butler was photographed standing on a barrel giving orders through the haze with a swagger stick as his marines built a firewall out of scrap metal and rushed tins of gasoline out of a third warehouse by hand. Butler was personally credited with saving the oil giant's $25 million plant. Whatever plans the forces behind Butler might have had for the future of the Chinese fiber plantations and its oil they were ultimately made redundant by a Rubicon event in 1937, when Japan crossed the Yongdong River on Lu Guo Bridge in Beijing, commencing their own invasion for resources, eventually seizing almost all the big harbors of the aforementioned commodities, creating in the south occupational enclaves around Xiapu, Fuzhou, Xiamen, Shantou and the greater Guangdong, Hong Kong area. And not to freak you out or anything, dear listener, but my gumshoe work with old maps in the old lexicons and atlases from the turn of the century really reached a cl- Fuck! <laughs> really reached a climax last month. You see, I found out that the Japanese occupied territories almost exactly overlap the entire existing cannabis hemp production of the whole of China. Man, sisters, it fits so perfectly that I have to make a double map to prove my point. A point which, again, I believe you could not have gotten anywhere other than on the return of the repressed. So sign up on Patreon or Spotify, buy me a third of a lunch so that I can keep doing this. Pictures will be on Patreon and Twitter of the map in question. Well, the two maps that I will put together. Now, I say the Marines' ambitions were 
ultimately made redundant, since we all know what peasant leader eventually put a stop to MacArthur and Chiang Kai-shek's fascist vision of China, which is not to say that there isn't plenty of more interesting stories of historical importance regarding the Guomindang's connection to US military industry, uh, which we we could return to in a fuller banana war series about the Macjunta. And when we do, please, for the love of the long march, remind me to try to clarify why the march seems to start off right in the heartland of southeastern hemp fields, and then walk as perfectly as one can along the borders of the southwestern jute fields, where it famously makes a circle around Tsuni in Guizhou, one of the old capitals of the Opium Triads, before continuing up north towards its historical mission. Guizhou, which judging from the province's Bureau of Agriculture and Rural Affairs, is leading the way today in cracking down on GMO seeds, while at the same time focusing on developing a local seed industry, and where so far, as of today, the Bureau has cultivated 2,500 prominent grain-growing households, 264 family farms, and 84 rural cooperatives. And that's literally how they list them. Not, we have done this kind of company a service or blah, 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 blah. Literally, this is how they frame it on the official Bureau of Agricultural uh, and Rural Affairs. Which, I mean, even if it's not completely true and that there is some fucking scheming going around, appearances matter. People should never forget this when they discuss whether China is communist or capitalist. There are appearances of both and appearances matter because it matters what we think and how we feel. Anyway, <laughs> corporate, <laughs> they did so by increasing efforts to intensify subsidies on agricultural machinery for farmers, a project which makes sure that of, as of July 2023, the area has already surpassed their grain quotas. And so, you know, these are the means of productions that I were talking about before, handed out by the state to prominent grain growing households, family farms and rural cooperatives. Ain't that some shit? Leaving China for the moment, let's look at our final contextual historical example as we end today's episode. The story of jute in Begal is mainly a British concern and does not concern the marines of Butler in the specific, but it is an important story to briefly mention in order to further set the stage leading up to the Marijuana Tax Act of 
that until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. I mean, say, whoa. That until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race. I disavow <laughs> that until that day the dream of lasting peace world citizenship the rule of international morality will remain in but a fleeting illusion to be pursued but never attained everywhere is war Empire, Industry and Class, The Imperial Nexus of Jute, 1840 to 1940, by the interesting Scottish Marxist Anthony Cox. We find out that throughout the depression of the 30s, increasing class consciousness and strikes would come to break at both ends the Imperial Dundee Bengal Jute Nexus, which we mentioned in the previous episodes. A workers' movement which eventually, unfortunately, would see a somewhat similar fate as the peasant uprisings in the US of the same time. That is, each to their own, met by a divide-and-conquer approach of their masters, which greets the moderates halfway. My Irish, Scottish and Bangladeshi listeners will have dead relatives who know exactly what I'm talking about, also in other respects. We see that the trade increases in all categories during the 30s, 
after an initial massive drop at the end of 29, i.e. Indian total exports of jute goods, Indian exports of jute goods to the UK, UK exports of home-produced jute goods, UK consumption of home-produced jute goods, number of Indian workers, number of UK workers, even the productivity of each worker, all increase. Then something happens in this our recurring fateful year of 1937, which drastically breaks the trend, of which Anthony writes the following, quote, For Anglo-Scottish capital and the colonial state, the 1937 general strike acted as a crossing of the Rubicon. And Marcus here might add, for the sake of our own grander narrative, it is the Rubicon where Pompey personifies hemp <laughs> and Gaius Julius is nylon. Uh, going on with the quote, they were forcibly made to realize that the strike was organized by and for the jute workers themselves rather than by manipulative communists and nationalist labor leaders. Uh, that's, you know, that's how they see it. I'm not ridiculing anybody here. Attempting to bend the jute workers to their will. At the height of the strike, a director of Thomas Duff nervously observed that the worker had effectively thrown aside any influence Siddhar's At the height of the strike, a director of Thomas Duff nervously observed that the workers had effectively, quote within quote, thrown aside any influence Siddhars or Babus may have had over him and thinks he is standing on his own, uh, end of quote within quote. And yes, Siddhars, they are the headman or chief or the foreman in Bengal jute mills and Babus are the uh, Bengali clerks. All right, continuing with the quote. The anxiety of jute capital was further heightened when it was learned that many Siddhars, again the foreman, both openly and surreptitiously, uh, he means secretly, had gone over to the side of the strikers. Indeed, in large parts of the jute belt, the labor control mechanism had almost completely broken down prompting serious discussions within the British business community regarding the future of the Sirdar Kadre. However, while the mill owners were keen to break up the Sirdar Kadre in order to prevent it from acting as an alternative source of authority, they remained resolutely opposed to its complete removal, as had been demanded by British trade union figures such as Tom Johnston and John Syme, as well as Indian labor organizations. Instead, an increasing number of mill managers abolished the post of head Siddhar and pulled the line Siddhars into the body of the Kirk. Uh, that's a Norse loan word for church. I guess you say Kirk in Scotland, which is the old word we say also Kirka. Uh, now we say Kirka. <laughs> well, the Norwegians still say Kirka or something, I guess. Though the introduction of pension schemes and other benefits, through the introduction of pension schemes and other benefits. In the immediate aftermath of the 1937 strike, an increasing number of managing agencies also began recruiting educated Bengalis as supervisors who, it was envisaged, would combine the supervisory role of the Siddhar and the technical skills of the Dundee school. Edward Bental was an early advocate of what has become known as Indianization, 
and in August 1937 he explained his support for the new policy to his rather more skeptical brother, Paul. And again, another quote within quotes. I am afraid that having made a promise to Mukherjee, I must press for the offering of encouragement to men trained in the Dundee schools. If we can encourage them to go by merely offering them a job, on trial of course, when they return so much the better, but I see no objection myself to giving a small scholarship to show our good faith. If we don't actively support policies like this in the future, but merely confine ourselves to words, the hollowness of our promises will soon become apparent. Having therefore settled on a policy, I am in favour of seeing it through wholeheartedly. End of quote within quote. Bental was seeking to win the trust of Indian business interests in the fight against radical nationalism as well as the communists and the quote-unquote Indianization of the lower grades of supervisory personnel was a possible and cost-effective means of achieving this goal. And that is the end of that quote in, in its uh, entirety. Now, I don't want to come across as I know exactly what this means. I think I try to be as honest as possible about how much of an ongoing project this show is. I'm learning all the time. Though, spontaneously, if I was going to make an assessment, I think this is an early indication of the coming postmodern financial colonialism, which both the French and the British would get so, what was the word, <laughs> surreptitiously good at in the later half of the 1900s. Also, there must be some designed purpose to them having almost completely positioned the raw material plantations of the industry in Bangladesh and all the new Indianized mills just on the other side of the border. You see, splitting the supply line. Uh, one part in Bangladesh, one's East Pakistan and the other more technical part in India while the trading companies in Calcutta could remain in terms of stockholders and bank accounts very British as the finished products continue to flow out to the world from her harbors. Furthermore, I think we can safely say that the dating of 1937 as the Rubicon for both the jute and cannabis hemp as well as the fate of all the various Chinese fibers considering the Japanese invasion cannot under any circumstances be a coincidence. I refuse to believe it until proven wrong as to keep my eyes open for more pieces of the puzzles. Eyes which might have been closed should I only focus on cannabis. I am proposing as you can tell that this is a political economical class struggle of many methods and a lot of class dialectics ultimately between natural versus synthetic fiber. And to back this up, I also find it hard to believe that Nylon could have had any market powers to outmaneuver both jute and cannabis in the same year as it was released. In the case of cannabis, we know they took judicial measures beyond the market, most likely for that very reason. Certainly, Japanese imperialism, in addition to the American hemp pan, is in this sense, you know, something which must be regarded as something more than business as usual. 
Manila hemp has its fate as well, though it comes later. But with uh, jute, I think it becomes a little bit less clear how they dealt with the problem of overproduction. I mean, it would be too cynical to say that the beginning of communist organizing in the Bengal only served the bourgeoisie well, hoping to make their product more exclusive and expensive uh, due to strikes, etc. But it wouldn't be too cynical, I think, to suggest that they did what FDR and the New Deal did with the peasants in America at the same time, i.e. to meet some elements of the resistance halfway as to alienate the communist avant-garde from its popular base, separate the millers and farmers into family accounting units, which would ultimately further the rationalization of the fiber export industry, and in addition prepare the ground for more famines to come. Alright, we did it. Three episodes and a handful of hours of setting the stage for the hemp conspiracy, originally put forward by Herrer, which he must be giving credit for despite it being peddled again and again in increasingly half-baked takes by all the cannabis conspiracy attainment outlets out there, be it high times or books on how to cook with, grow or sell marijuana. Now, nothing is left for us but to not fall into the same lazy trap. In the next episode we must go beyond and fuse the particularity of hemp, the most suitable temperate fiber and its ban, with international fascism. We know Hearst was a Nazi. Even Wikipedia allows the pointing out of Parenti that Hearst Communications, the world's biggest media conglomerate at the time, became an extended international outlet for the NSDAP mass media. Under his direct supervision, they published papers by Goebbels, Goering and Rosenberg. Mellon praised Mussolini, and Mellon-controlled corporations were often singled out as the most collaborative by post-war commissions and government personnel. Irene Dupont followed and supported Hitler's rise to power from the 20s onwards. Harry J. Anslinger, Mellon's infamous nephew-in-law, got his position with his uncle's help, who appointed him head of the new Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which would become the most racist and anti-communist repressive apparatus of the order of the Fourth Black Eagle. Was indeed, though not mentioned by Herrer or his hangabout, a fluent German speaker born of first-generation Swiss-German immigrants and served as a spy during World War I, and maybe on both sides in the second. Stick around as we will find out more in the next episode. It is my sincere hope that by doing so, studying the censorship, dealing with the return of the repressed, the Aufhebung of our obstacles, becoming in the midst of this negation, we might envision the class-free pure land in the ten directions of space, Throughout the universe, there is only peace. Dream.